This is Meditations for Misfits, and I'm Fred Gruy. In this podcast, we'll delve into the parable of the unmerciful servant, as recorded in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and consider how Jesus' story might liberate us into becoming more fully human. The text that uh, Kay read to us, this sobering text, follows directly from the uh, text that we had last Sunday. So last Sunday, to refresh your minds, uh, we were presented with Jesus giving us a process on how to get along when it's hard to get along. Jesus, as he was beginning uh, his community of followers, knew that there were times and things they just wouldn't see eye to eye on and was wise enough to give us a process on how to work things out. And the history of those of us that have tried to follow Jesus for more than 2,000 years uh, is that we've never gotten along and we've needed this process and, and greater wisdom to help us get along. And I suggested last Sunday that one of the great tools or uh, yeah, tools to help us work things out with each other is humility. And this morning we are offered what will be another great tool in the process of getting along and working things out and living in relationship with each other. And this will be the gift of forgiveness. But uh, the story as it's given to us is really just hard to endure. It, it, it assaults our 21st century North American sensibilities. I mean, the way it's given to us, some numbskull owes a king $7 billion, billion with a B, making currency exchange from that time to this. And the king cancels the debt, and the man goes out and finds somebody that owes him two grand and demands payment. And when the man can't pay the two grand back, the servant throws that man into prison to be tortured until it's paid. And that violates our sense of justice and fair play. And we wonder how could this crazy situation come about? And I wanna remind you, by way of introduction, about the parables. Parables are not designed to make logical sense, I've suggested. They are designed to blow our heads open so that we could live more from our heart and from our souls. And so they are designed on intention to mess with us and to mess with our sensibilities. I've also suggested, according to the theologian Robert Ferrard Capon, that I lean heavily on in my own study of the parabolic literature, is that the parables are all about the realm of God, every one of them, even this one. And that the things Capon says that we can say affirmatively about the realm of God, there's five things, see if you remember them with me. It's a mystery, this realm of God, we're never gonna completely figure it out. It is everywhere available all the time, it's not geographically bound. It has its own power and energy. We don't help it out and we don't support it financially. It's good enough on its own. 
And then four and five, he throws together, and we're going to run into those today. Number four, he says, when the realm of God interrupts our time and space continuum, it demands an immediate response from us because, point number five, we live in a universe that is diametrically opposed to the aims and goals and ethos of the realm of God. You and I live in a world where we discriminate by age, race, sexual orientation, color of skin, religion, politics. We have all uh, sports teams that we like. Or don't. We have all these discriminatory things that we have created. Nations are a creation. And, and we discriminate based on a lot of this stuff. And in the realm of God, that's not the case. And so the universe we live in is diametrically opposed and is confronted by this realm of God. And when the realm of God interrupts or interpenetrates where we're at, it demands that we immediately respond to it, which is, I suggest, one of the things we will find in this parable. So now to the parable itself. As the story Jesus has given to us, it's a crazy story. A man somehow was able to borrow an unsecured loan from a king for $7 billion, translating the money from then to now. Now, I don't know about you. Have you ever gone to a bank to apply for a loan? An unsecured loan. They won't give you 50 bucks unsecured. I mean, you have to prove to a bank you don't need the money in order to borrow the money before they'll loan it to you. So somehow, some way, this man has borrowed from a king $7 billion. So the graciousness of the king is just, it's wild. And so it's time for the loan to be paid back, and the man can't pay the loan back. Now this man... I'm going to suggest with all grace, had to have been dumber than dirt. How do you blow $7 billion in this time and place? I mean, it's not like he could go buy a Tesla dealership or that, I mean, how do you squander $7 billion with nothing to show for it in the ancient Mediterranean world. Did he buy Africa one night and lose it in a poker game? I mean, how do you have seven billion and then nothing to show for it? And he's terrified, he's stressed. He comes before the king and the loan is due. And he's so stressed out, he knows he and his family are gonna to be tortured and thrown into prison till it's paid back. And so he makes an absurd request. He says to the king, give me more time and I'll pay you back. Now, because I study this stuff, in Jesus's day and time and place, the average wage, according to our money, would be about a penny a day. So how much time do you think <laughs> earning a penny a day this guy's going to need to pay back a $7 billion loan. How much time? It's an absurd request. How could he ask for more time to pay back something that could never be repaid? And I think 
That's at the heart of the story, as Jesus tells us. This is a debt that cannot be repaid. And then the king does the most unimaginable thing in the story. And the whole story hinges on the king's action here. The king does not accede to the man's request. The king does not give the man more time to pay the debt back. The king cancels the debt. Nullifies it. Nothing. It's gone. What kind of graciousness is that? Written it off. Now the tragedy, as I read this story, and as I've wrestled with it, is the man had no concept of what just took place. The man had asked the king, give me more time to pay this back. He now leaves the king's presence, not realizing what just occurred. And he goes out trying to shake down everybody that owes him money so that he can pay back a debt that was just canceled. Janice, you owe me two grand. You've got to pay me the two grand. They're going to throw my family into jail. Dawn, you owe me 500 bucks. Give me the five. They're going to throw. I need it. I need it. I need it. And Janice says, no, give me more time up. No, no, no. Throw her into jail. And so he is out shaking down everybody that owes him anything in an effort to pay back a debt that no longer exists, which is the tragedy of the story. And in my understanding of the parables, grace came into his life in the realm of God, and he missed it. And so he's trying to pay back something that could never be paid back. And the dire consequences of his not accepting the grace that was offered to him is at the end of the story, he is tormented until every penny is paid. So we resist and fight the realm of God to our own peril as I read this story. Now, a, a couple of things. The wonderful writer Philip Yancey, I, I really, really like. He has a great line. He says, this is one of the problems with grace. It's not fair. And we don't like that. We want something fair. And grace is not fair. Grace is well beyond fair. And the tragedy is this poor man missed out on what was offered to him. And I suggest we are in his camp when we struggle to forgive those that have wounded and hurt us. And so here's a little exercise I, I sometimes do for myself. And I offer it to you as a way to, to enflesh this parable before us. So what you might do, if there's somebody you're really struggling forgiving, somebody that's really done you wrong, really, really hurt you, get a piece of paper and, and do like a Ben Franklin list. Draw a line down the middle. And on one side of the paper, write down everything that person did to wound you and hurt you. Everything they took from you. Every time they rolled, rolled their eyes at you or said something defamatory about you. 
Write, be, be scrupulous and write down absolutely everything you remember that they have done to you. Put it all down right there on the paper. And on the other side of the paper, be just as scrupulous and write down everything you have ever done to others to wound and hurt them. Everything you've taken that you shouldn't have taken. Every time you've maligned somebody or someone's right. Now be just as scrupulous on that side as you were on the first. And when you're finished, look at the piece of paper and see who might get the better deal if we just let everybody off the hook. This forgiveness stuff is really, really really important. I have been a minister, Christian minister, for nearly or over 50 years. My memory isn't so good anymore. I lose track. In that time, I can honestly tell you, I have prayed with and for thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I'm not, that's not hyperbole. I'm not making that up. In my Pentecostal years, I traveled 40 or 50 weekends a year doing all kinds of seminars and retreats. And It would not be uncommon on a weekend to pray for literally hundreds of people in those events. And I can tell you without question, the number one request for prayer was for forgiveness of others, of themselves, Without nothing even comes a close second. This soul wounding that we experience, these, these things are deep and profound, and they, they maim us, and they, they truncate our ability to live life abundantly. They are life-limiting wounds. And to be able to forgive, to learn to forgive, is crucial for our happiness. The, the wonderful theologian Lewis Smead says, when we forgive someone, we discover we set a prisoner, we, we set free, was set free, and that prisoner was us. And it's not about whether the other person deserves it or is worthy of it or whatever. It's about us being able to walk and live in such a way we are not carrying that heavy load with us anymore. So I'm suggesting the tragedy of this parable is that the man that had been forgiven so much didn't realize in his bones that he had been forgiven and went out to extract repayment from everybody that ever owed him anything. And that that was his torture. He, the, the end of the story as it's given to us by Jesus is this is what the Creator will do for each of you, that you'll be tormented. And, and I don't think that means go to hell. I think that means living a life of torment, of being eaten up by the poison of unforgiveness. I, I referenced last week Shylock in the, the Shakespeare play Merchant of Venice who demands his pound of flesh. He demands justice, demands justice. And it that demand for justice cost him everything. Cost him the, the love of his own daughter. Cost him his own business. Cost him his reputation. Cost him everything. Because he was so adamant 
that he be repaid what was owed him. And if we don't learn to forgive, that same torment will afflict us, according to my reading of this story. And so we neglect the grace of the realm of God to our peril. Now at the end, in in Capon's book, where he's talking about this particular parable, he has a great way to end it. He says, here's the bottom line. The, the, The truth is this. The only people in heaven are forgiven sinners. That's the only population in heaven. The only people in heaven are forgiven sinners. And he says, here's the kicker. The only people in hell are forgiven sinners. And the only difference is that people in hell wouldn't accept it. They wouldn't receive it. And so I'm suggesting we torment ourselves when we refuse to forgive others or even forgive ourselves. A lot of the people I've prayed with, their great struggle is forgiving themselves. And I'm suggesting this is an important thing for us to learn because here in the life of our church, we've been through, Dr. Karen has led us through our season of transition with our listening post and our sessions of talking back to us and here's what we've heard. And out of that, out of the listening post process, it was voiced that we desire some mechanism to help us get along with each other because in the last eight years or so, we've had two major relational eruptions in our midst. And we need something to help us navigate this, a tool, mechanism. And so Karen and our leadership team have been working on an agreement of what we can agree to of how to behave towards each other, how to be kind to each other when we're not gonna see eye to eye, we're not gonna agree. I may want to spend $50 here on this project and you may want to spend it on another and we're just not going to agree, but we can still be kind to each other and some, have some mechanism, some guardrail to protect our relationship because our relationship is what's most important. And we're calling it a behavioral agreement. We're going to talk about that in our annual meeting and we're fashioning that out as a way to learn to enflesh this idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a concept. How can we live it? Where does the rubber meet the road? How do we do that? And this is a a help along with that. So that's where we are in the life of our church. And I would say this is something we really, for our own health, need to give good attention and purpose and heart to, if we're going to continue. Because the truth is, the history of Christianity, nobody's ever gotten along. (laughs) But if we could at least learn how to not get along kindly, we'd be making a major move forward. And so that's all we're trying to do. So my friends, I suggest forgiveness is not optional on the, the way of radical love. It is baked into the to the core of it. Humility and forgiveness will serve us well as we fashion the kind of people we want to become.